Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Our guest experts on this episode number 17 on stroke are Dr. Daniel Selchin and Dr. Walter Himmel. Dr. Himmel is an emergency physician at North York General, Scarborough General, and Toronto East General Hospitals. He's a world-renowned speaker in emergency medicine and recipient of multiple teaching awards. Dr. Selchin is a neurologist and a Rhodes Scholar. He is the head of the Division of Neurology and Regional Stroke Program at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He was the medical director of the West Greater Toronto Area Stroke Centre from 2001 to 2008 and is a researcher in stroke and TIA. Stroke is the leading cause of disability among adults in North America. And I'm talking serious disability. Permanent hemiparesis, inability to walk without assistance, aphasia, and institutionalization are common with many strokes. Historically, there's been little we could do in the ED for patients who presented with stroke, but the last 15 years has seen some significant progress. Progress not only in the benefits of lytic therapy, but also improvement in general stroke care both in the ED and in hospital, and the increasing use of dedicated stroke units. Today, we're lucky to have the triumphant return to EMC, backed by popular demand, two experts with a combined clinical experience of over 60 years. Dr. Himmel, who's probably my number one emergency doctor mentor, and Dr. Selchin, who runs a stroke program at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. With them, we're going to discuss four essential and controversial topics in stroke for the practicing emergency doctor. Thrombolysis, the new alternative to warfarin, that is, dabigatrin, the management of intracranial hemorrhage, and the things that you can do in the ED for your stroke patients that will make a difference. Before listening to this episode, I highly recommend that you give episode 6 on TIA a listen, or a quick read of the written summary at least, where Dr. Himmel and Dr. Selchin covered the four types of stroke, the ABCD2 score, the importance of early carotid imaging, TIA and stroke mimics, unusual causes of stroke, secondary prevention of stroke including antiplatelet choices after TIA, basilar artery disease, and an approach to vertigo. Before we get into talking about stroke and the use of lytics in stroke, we're going to expand on some of the things that we talked about in episode 6 on TIA. And the first thing we're going to talk about is the ABCD2 score. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome back Dr. Himmel and Dr. Selchin. Glad to be here. Nice to be back. Great. So let's jump right into our first case. Our first case is that of an 83-year-old woman who presents to your community hospital ED via ambulance at 9 p.m. with speech difficulty and weakness on the right side. She was well until dinner when her husband observed her slump over in her chair at about 7 p.m. She was unable to speak and could not move her right arm or leg. Her past medical history includes a TIA three months prior for which she was put on aspirin for stroke prevention, diabetes and hypertension for which she is taking metformin and adicand. Her carotid Doppler was considered non-surgical at the time of the TIA. She has no known cardioembolic risk factors, specifically no AFib, no recent MI, and no valvular disease. Her vital signs on arrival were normal except for a blood pressure of 175 on 100. A finger prick glucose check was moderately elevated at 13. She appeared alert but was unable to speak intelligibly. She had an obvious facial droop. She could move her right arm and leg but could not lift her either limb off the bed. An ECG showed normal sinus rhythm. A CT of the head showed no hemorrhage and no early ischemic changes. Her CBC and INR were normal. It's now 10.15 p.m., three and a quarter hours after symptom onset. Dr. Himmel, in 
episode six on TIA, we talked about the ABCD2 score and that it can be helpful to identify those patients at high risk of subsequent stroke after TIA because it identified the most important risk factors for stroke and it identified the physical findings that were the most predictive of a true vascular event. The ABCD2 score has been used extensively as a disposition decision tool for patients with TIA in the ED. However, recently, the value of the ABCD2 score in predicting stroke has been questioned. There's been two recent studies on this topic this year, one out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine and another in the Canadian Association Medical Journal from Jeff Perry and Ian Steele out of Ottawa, just hot off the press as of this recording. So Dr. Himmel, can you tell us a little bit about these studies what their conclusions were, and how we should incorporate their findings into our daily clinical practice. Sure. When I first read these two studies, frankly, I was shocked. But upon reflection and reflection and reflection, it's all beginning to make sense to me. The ABCD2 score is based on the work of S. Claiborne Johnson from California and Peter Rothwell from Britain in Oxfordshire. And they suggested strongly that as you had more risk factors based on age, blood pressure, paralysis, speech deficit, that the risk of your stroke was very high in the first two days and, of course, in the first three months. And they predicted the risk of stroke of approximately 10% in three months and as high as 5% in the first two days. But, oh, these studies are challenging. We know from the work in syncope that every study deserves internal validation and external validation. We also know from the work in syncope that complex topics are often not reduced to simple formulas. So what do these two studies show? Well, those two studies are quite different. The first study report in Annals was based on work in the Mayo Clinic between 2001 and 2006. But the population here was quite different. These patients were treated extremely aggressively. They were seen by multiple physicians. They were investigated aggressively with cardiograms, blood tests, CT scans, almost immediate Doppler of the neck, an early surgical referral. This population is treated and investigated urgently. And here's what they found. They found that the risk of a stroke at seven days varied from 1.1% to as high as 3.6% at 90 days. So certainly the risk of a stroke was high, but much less than the original work of the ABCD2 score. And the study demonstrates to my mind, when you treat patients extraordinarily aggressively, two things happens. Number one, the risk of a stroke drops dramatically. And number two, the sensitivity and specificity of the original ABCD2 score will be significantly altered because the patients are very different. So my conclusion from the analyst paper would be the following. The ABCD2 score is helpful and that it points out a TA is a major risk for a stroke and urgent evaluation is important. But certainly, if you investigate people urgently, rapidly, and treat thoroughly in the first 24 to 48 hours, who needs the ABCD2 score? Because you've already decided to investigate these patients with alacrity. The other paper was the Canadian Medical Association Journal paper published in the last couple of months. And this was based on looking at patients between the years of 2007 and 2010. And the paper showed very similar things. Number one, the risk of a stroke seven days was only 1.8%, and 90 days, only 3.2%. Canadians must be a different population. But there's another explanation. The years of 2007 to 2010 were not the years of 2000 to 2006. By 2007, 2008, 
2009, thanks to the work of Peter Rothwell and S. Claiborne Johnson, thieves were treated much more aggressively. Therefore, I suspect the incidence of falling stroke was less. So the conclusion would have to be the ABCD2 score is helpful. The ABCD2 score is not a law, but points out to you there is a significant risk of stroke. And if you act quickly and rapidly, the outcome will be better than it was between 2000 and 2005. So I believe the ABCD2 score is useful, but remember one thing. Just because the score is relatively low, zero or one or two or three, doesn't mean the patient is at risk. In fact, the patient is still at risk and deserves urgent evaluation. In fact, you could argue that rather than using the ABCD2 score to suggest who requires urgent referral, you could now argue all these patients require urgent referral and urgent evaluation. Another thing you could argue, of course, is of the ABCD2 score, the most important things are the C, speech deficits, motor weakness, and of course, duration. Dr. Selchin, what does the ABCD2 score miss? I think the biggest weakness of the ABCD2 score, if uh, it's taken as religion rather than as a guide, is that if you take, for example, a 56-year-old normal intensive male who smokes two packs a day and has a 95% carotid stenosis and has a 10-minute episode of speech disturbance, his ABCD2 score is going to be relatively low, but he's about the highest risk patient that you're ever going to see. So like most tools, it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. And posterior circulation strokes doesn't even come into the equation in terms of the ABCD2 yeah, score. Yeah, because a lot of the symptoms uh, that, uh, that you would see in the posterior circulation uh, don't really count in terms of ABCD2, okay. yet, vertigo, diplopia, etc. Right, yet those patients are even at higher risk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I agree totally. That, totally. that score mainly is aimed at people with anterior circulation strokes. So if anything, our conclusion would be, be even more careful. That leaves us in the conundrum of who needs to be admitted and who needs a rapid workup. Now, from the discussion that we just had, I'm to assume that pretty much everyone who you're quite sure has had a TIA should get an urgent workup, no matter what their ABCD2 score is, but especially if they have a high ABCD2 score. I think if a patient comes in and the only symptom is sensory, complaining of numbness in the arm or a leg or the side of the face, absolutely nothing else, that patient's probably at low risk of a stroke, probably. I think a patient comes in with isolated vertigo and nothing else. And if the vertigo is far much more than their ataxia, this patient probably has a peripheral problem. On the other hand, they've got motor or speech problems. This is a very different issue. And they need urgent evaluation by every means is available to you. For some patients, that will be admission. For some hospitals, that would mean referral to a stroke clinic. It depends where you work and what you've got available to you. I, I agree completely, and uh, there are some tools that can be used in some emergency rooms that can be very useful in this regard. A CT angiogram, for instance, not available to everybody, but a remarkably good tool if you have somebody who's presented with a motor and speech issue and you want to sort out whether they have significant large vessel disease. And easy to do, obviously not universally available. 
I mean, let's cover one more important point that I think people sort of wonder about, but we haven't discussed and often been discussed. Number one, what is the incidence of carotid artery stenosis in TIAs? And does it matter? The incidence of carotid artery stenosis varies from as low as 1-2% to as high as 5%. Is that important? Well, sure. Those are the guys whose lives you're going to save. That's why the CTA is important. A CTA may pick up intracranial stenosis. It may pick up aortic problems if you go right down to the aorta. But the real issue is you don't want to miss carotid artery stenosis. Now, I know many emerge doctors, including myself, can go six months, a year, two years, three years, not pick up a single case of carotid artery stenosis and begin to believe, oh, it doesn't exist. Well, I can tell you from experience, I was one of those doctors until about a month ago. In one week, I picked up two patients with 70% carotid artery stenosis. That's the thing you want to pick up. Does aspirin make a difference? Well, sure. It'll reduce the risk of a stroke by about 18, 20, 25% over the next two, three, four years. But where you can make a really, really big difference is the carotid artery stenosis. That's where the money is. And let's face it, where do doctors make a difference? Not to the masses. You make a difference to the three, four, five percent for intervention is life-saving and body-saving. Absolutely. It amazes me that one year ago, if I would have suggested that people with TIAs in the emergency department should get carotid imaging that day in the emergency department, most people would think I was loony. But just in the one year now, I think now it wouldn't be unreasonable to try and get carotid imaging for your high-risk TIA patients when they arrive as we would get, say, a CAT scan for any other variety of emergency department imaging that we do. Well, I don't want to bore the audience, but I've got to share a case I saw about two weeks ago. It's beautiful. This person was about 70 years of age, a professor of pathology at a well-known Toronto hospital who came in saying he'd lost the vision in his right eye for approximately five minutes, came on suddenly and resolved suddenly. About a week earlier, the same thing had happened. This physician didn't believe in drugs, didn't believe in blood pressure treatment, but he, he was taking one aspirin a day. Funny sort of guy, a bit eccentric, being pathologist, I guess. Well, I examined him and found nothing until I realized this guy's a doctor. I better listen to his neck. And what did I hear? Bilateral carotid artery bruise. Now, I know the correlation between a bruise and stenosis isn't perfect. This fellow had a Doppler the next day. He has 75% stenosis of his right internal carotid artery and about 50% of his left internal carotid artery. It really exists. But if only one patient in 20 has it, you've got to examine a fair number of patients before you become convinced of its value. Unless you're looking at 10, 20, 30, 40 doctors, and then the value is much more apparent. But for all individuals, and of course, her treatment is based on our own personal experience. It makes a difference. And uh, Dr. Hellman, if we have this discussion in eight or nine years, we'll probably be looking at a time when uh, patients who come in with real TIAs will have an MRI, MRA in the emergency room. So not only will we know their vascular status, we'll pick up the 40 or 50% of them who've actually had a stroke and uh, that's really the tool that would be ideal for this scenario, but we're not there yet. Okay. And of course, heart disease in Toronto with ST elevation infarct, they're all getting the angiograms. 
this would have been unimaginable 10 years ago, maybe yeah. even five years ago. Yeah, things have changed. It's amazing. Let's talk about TPA and stroke. Just a little bit of background. First, in this case, our 83-year-old patient with an obvious ischemic stroke has a blood pressure of 175 over 100, and now it's about three and a half hours after symptom onset, and the decision needs to be made whether or not to thrombolize. First, we need to ask, why lytics for stroke? Well, we know that lytics given early in STEMI saves lives and improves outcomes as lytics bust the offending clot and help to restore perfusion to the viable tissue. So it makes sense that the same might be true for strokes. MRI and CT perfusion studies in patients with acute stroke suggest that the ischemic areas of the brain may in some cases remain viable for as long as 24 hours with the potential for restoration of normal function after reperfusion. We know that the outcomes for IV lytics for stroke patients is probably not quite as good as that for MI, but it's, and it still remains a controversial topic despite several guidelines that endorse its use in the right patient within the right time period. At present, only a very small proportion of stroke patients end up receiving lytics, likely because of poor public education to recognize the symptoms of stroke, diagnostic uncertainty in some patients on initial presentation, a paucity of centers that have organized systems in place to take care of stroke patients and to give them lytics, and because of persistent controversy over its benefits. Let's first talk about TPA given within three hours of stroke symptom onset. Some experts believe that TPA within three hours of stroke in selected patients has a clear benefit in routine practice that's highly effective, reasonably safe, and grossly underused, while others, like Jerry Hoffman, for example, believe that the benefits of TPA in stroke is unproven and that it should not be applied to real-world practice based on the opinion of that of the landmark TPA stroke trial, the NINS trial, which he believes was misinterpreted. So let's go through a little history of the big studies in lytic and stroke. And if you could just review for us what the main findings of the big studies were and how we've come to our present day practice of lytic and stroke. The really major trial in, in this area was the NINS trial. I think it's important to remember that the NINS trial wasn't one trial, it was two trials. It was a zero to 90 minute trial and a 90 to 180 minute trial. And if there's any one thing other than elementary logic and data that destroys Jerry Hoffman's argument, it's the fact that in the zero to 90 minute group, patients do twice as well as in the 90 to 180 minute group. So there's a clear biological activity dictated by time. Very compelling data to suggest a number needed to treat uh, between seven and nine to affect a significant outcome benefit. I just disagree with one thing that you said earlier, Dr. Hellman. I think in terms of uh, IV thrombolytic use, if you compare the data, IV thrombolysis and stroke is probably actually under three hours more effective than thrombolysis in myocardial infarction if you look at the whole body of data in terms of number needed to treat. And the notion that the data was misrepresented, 
every time another issue was, uh, was raised about this data, it was reanalyzed. No clinical trial data, I think, in the history of man has ever been reanalyzed as many times as this data. The results are always the same. And it astonishes me, I must say, that there's still a controversy about this data. The other major data I guess we'll touch on later is the three to four and a half hour data from the ECAS-3 trial. Let me just mention it now because it has the same biological consistency. When you go between three and four and a half hours, patients do not do as well, do not get as much benefit as they do at zero to 90 or 90 to 180. So time is a very, very important factor here. There also uh, is a meta-analysis putting all of the thrombolytic data together, which clearly indicates, in, in terms of the arguments about this being one trial, that if you do the meta-analysis, the exact same line holds, and there's a clear, a rare thing in medical data, there's a linear relationship between time of treatment and outcome which I think is the, if there's one crucial message about this, that's it. Well, let's talk about the history of mankind. It's the history of successive approximation to improvements and improvements and improvements. Now, as you know, with myocardial infarction, there's been tons of studies, each one showing an improvement on the previous study. There's probably 19 studies looking at the use of TPA in strokes going back over 20 years. There's no question, the original work called the ASK study, the MAST-E, the MAST-I, looked at streptokinase. Ineffective, so let's dismiss that. The first ECAS study in the early 1990s used a dose of 1.1 milligram per kilogram of TPA, 1.1 milligrams, and was a six-hour study. Many of those patients were given aspirin or heparin. What did that study show? Don't use aspirin, don't use heparin, and don't use 1.1 milligrams. That study did not show TPA as ineffective. That study showed TPA up to six hours with aspirin heparin isn't a good idea. The next study, ECAS-2. That study was a study of 0.9 milligram per kilogram, up to six hours. Did that study show harm? No, that was a neutral study probably no harm and probably no benefit. We can talk about a hemorrhage, symptomatic hemorrhage, but as a patient outcome, that was a neutral study. There was actually a risk, a benefit of about 3.7% in terms of a modified Rathkin score of zero or one. In plain words, more patients did well, but because of the downsides, that was a neutral study. So what do we learn from ECAS2? You gotta be careful. 0.9 milligram is a reasonable dose and six hours is probably too long. The NIN study was done at about the same time. What did the NIN study show? 624 patients. The NIN study showed if you treat patients within three hours, if you know what you're doing and you use exact exclusion criteria, for example, a platelet count of must be over 100,000, your INR must be 1.5 or 1.7 or less. Of course, the trial reported a, INR, a pro time of 15 seconds. It's not quite sure what that corresponds to, but let's say INR 1.5 or 1.7, we can debate that later. If you follow all the exclusionary principles carefully, patients do better. Now, of course, how are patients scored? They were scored by four different systems, the stroke score, a Ratkin score, which basically tells you how well you're functioning, 
They were scored by a Barthol score, which tells you how well do you function with daily activities, and a couple of other scores as well. And as Dr. Selshin said, the absolute risk reduction, the number of patients who did better, varied from 11 to 13%, depending on the score. Now, how many patients do TPA save in myocardial infarction? 4%. How many patients does TPA save in strokes? 11 to 13%. And let's face it, when TPA came out from myocardial infarction, was there any intracranial hemorrhaging? Yes. What was the incidence? 0.3%, 0 0.5%, 1%. And the elderly, how many had intracranial hemorrhaging? In many studies, more than 1%. Did people speak about that? No. There is risk with TPA even in myocardial infarction. Let's look at the Atlanta study. That was a study that was very complicated. When the Atlanta study first began, it was going to patients from zero to six hours. Of course, ECAS work was reported, so the Atlanta study was changed to zero to five hours. Well, then the NIT study came out. Atlanta's guy says, oh, forget the zero to five. We know zero to three is okay. We know five to six isn't great. Let's look at three to five hours. And that was a negative study. But of course, you know, in the Atlanta study, a fair number of patients between the four and five hour period. So what did the Latin study tell you? Well, it tells you when you get close to four and five hours, TPA may be a risky thing to do. So I've been a bit more long-winded about it. As Dr. Selishin said, we've got biological realities. The longer you wait, the worse the outcome. So my read is this. TPA is a bit like water and sex. They're great things. You can't live without them but you have to know what you're doing because they can kill you if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so rather than dismiss TPA, one has to look at the data. And rather than arguing that there were 16 negative studies and two positive studies, I would say the studies over time have shown better and better results with more and more specific exclusions and more and more attention to time and detail and we're gradually approaching a useful truth. And in fact, my read is TPA in the right system, in the right hands, with well-prepared, committed physicians, saves not just lives, it makes your life more useful. Now, certainly people argue there weren't that many lives saved, and that's correct. But in terms of functional life, if you have a chance, absolute chance of having, 11 to 13 minutes chance of having better speech, better ability to walk, to function and to communicate, that's a fantastic drug. I think TPA is remarkably effective, but you really have to know what you're doing. So putting all the trials together, you mentioned a number needed to treat uh, between seven and nine if given within three hours. Yeah. And it's a number needed to treat of about four and a half if given within 90 minutes. And as you go out further, time is of the essence. Obviously, it's less and less now. What, we'll, we'll get on to the ECAS-3 trial, which extended the window to four and a half hours. Dr. Hemel, you had mentioned the Atlantis trial, which was three to five hours. This is something that I've tried to get my head around. Why is it that the Atlantis trial was a negative trial, but the ECAS-3 trial was a positive trial and the time was about the same? Dr. Selchin? I think there are several issues. I think, to my mind, the biggest one is actually imaging. And I think Dr. Hemel's comments about improvement and quality control are very essential. In the ECAS-3 trial, a tremendous amount of attention was paid to the initial MRI scan. 
And in a rather large trial, the percentage of violators in terms of the uh, MRI scans was exceedingly small. So the bottom line is that the longer you go out in time from the event, the more attention you have to pay to the scan. Because if you've got a patient who already has a completed infarct on their CT scan, you're not likely to do them any good with TPA, and you may actually be much more likely to do harm than to do good. So I think when you look at the extending the time window, imaging becomes much more important. And I think the success of ECAS-3 in extending that window was because of very careful attention to detail in evaluating the imaging. I also think in the ECAS-3 trial, if you read the paper carefully, it points out the following. 10% of the patients were treated between three and three and a half hours, and 47% between three and a half and four hours. In plain words, well over half the patients were treated between three and four hours. In the Atlantis trial, a large number of patients treated between four and five hours. So clearly, time matters. And when you're getting up to three and four and five hours, 30 minutes makes a big difference. This patient that we're talking about is 83 years old. My understanding is that most of these trials had very few patients over 80 years old. And these patients are the ones that we worry about bleeding from TPA. Should elderly patients, patients over 80 in particular, be receiving lytics for stroke? It's a very interesting question. I think what we, you have to look at first in terms of answering that question is why were those patients excluded from the trials? That's really the key issue. Were they excluded from the trials because of a perceived increased risk related to treatment? The answer is no. That's simply false. They were excluded from the trials because in stroke trials, as in any other clinical trial, you want to choose a population that's most likely to be informative. The biggest factor in terms of predicting outcome from a stroke is the patient's age whether you treat them with thrombolysis or whether you treat them with nothing. Age is a, is a very significant negative factor in terms of stroke outcome. So the reason that older patients were excluded from the trials not, was not because of perceived danger or risk. It was because there was concern that they would be uninformative because a large proportion of them would do badly no matter what you do when it comes to statistical analysis. Now, we don't normally, when we're looking at clinical trials and then we, uh, we translate them into practice, we don't say you can't treat group X, Y, and Z because they weren't included in the trial because if we did that, in a lot of areas, we'd only be able to tr treat about 20% of our patients. So the real issue here is there's significant increased risk in treating older patients with TPA. And the data suggests, actually, that the risk that we're really concerned about, the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage, the differences related to age are actually quite minor. So there is an increased risk of worse outcome with or without TPA. But to my mind, that's not an argument at all for not treating people. The European study, the ECAS-3, excluded diabetics I actually asked the chair of the steering committee of the trial 
uh, why they excluded diabetics, he said, because the European Commission told us to, and he was never quite sure why. But does that mean that I'm not going to treat a diabetic who comes in with an acute stroke at three-plus hours? No, they were excluded possibly for the same sorts of reasons that I was talking about. The other point is, what patients are going to do absolutely horrible after a stroke? Well, patients with a stroke score of 15 or more who are over 80 years of age. Patients over 80 years of age with stroke score 15 are going to end up with what? Institutionalized, with bed sores, pneumonia, sepsis, and death. These are exactly the patients who you want to give a chance for improvement. Because the truth of it is, no matter what you do, the outcome will be bad. But a certain number, probably 4 or 5, 6 percent, I'd be guessing, have a chance for improved outcome. So is it an absolute contraindication to use TPA? Absolutely not. Like all things, you look at your studies, you look at your patients, you do a risk-benefit analysis, and then you take a big breath and you make a decision. Yeah, the biggest registry in stroke, the SITSMOST, did show that for patients over the age of 80 that the odds ratio for improvement at 19 days was actually similar to patients under 80. We don't have any randomized control trials with a ton of patients over the 80, but at least the registry data does support the use of it over the age of 80. And similarly, the registry data does not suggest a greatly increased risk of symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage. When we got data from academic hospitals, some experts were saying that community hospitals weren't quite ready for lytics yet. However, some of this registry data was done in community hospitals supporting it, like the cases Canadian data did support the use of, of lytics in community hospitals. Where are we now in terms of using lytics in community hospitals, and where should we be going to? Well, we're on a learning curve, and every community learns differently and has different solutions. You know, the famous Cleveland study has been quoted many, many times. There's two Cleveland studies, right? There's the first Cleveland study, which showed violations were dramatic. I think about 25 or 30% of violations. As a consequence of that, intracranial hemorrhage was extraordinarily high, uh, something around 20, 25%. But the Cleveland study was repeated a second time with more training and more attention to detail, and the outcome was uh, much better. So let's face it, there's always going to be the issue of effectiveness and efficacy. Efficacy in the best hands and effectiveness in all hands. The two will never be exactly the same. I think as emergency doctors, working in hospitals, as physicians, members of the community, our job is to make the effectiveness, which we're responsible for, as close to the efficacy as possible. The ability to do a stroke score, the ability to access help in reading your CT scan, the ability to have neurologists who you communicate with is essential. If you haven't got that, then perhaps you're in a city where you can have stroke centers, uh, which will do this for you. In which case, if you're not a stroke center, but you believe in this, as I do, you've got to have a way of calling a stroke center urgently for rapid help. There are a lot of systems issues which have to be addressed here. That still requires a fair amount of work in many communities. I can't help pointing out the case, uh, Dr. Hellman, that you've given us here, in itself illustrates an important issue. A patient in the case arrived at about two hours, and we're still waiting to make a decision at three and a half hours. So the emergency room that this patient went to may not have a system. And the important issue is systematizing this, having protocols, 
having a system for getting a patient like the one in, uh, in your example into a scanner in 20 minutes, which isn't all that hard to do if there's a system in place, so that our decision in this particular patient should be made at two hours and 45 minutes rather than three and a half hours. We've talked a lot up till now about time to treatment. Some newer data is showing that time to treatment isn't the only thing we should be looking at. And things like the volume of the ischemic penumbra around the infarct might be important now and in the future in terms of which patients might benefit the most from lytic therapy. Dr. Selchin, could you tell us a little bit about the background and reasoning for knowing what the ischemic penumbra is and how that might play into how we treat our stroke patients in the near future? Sure. Time in, uh, in this context is a bit artificial because when we go strictly on the basis of time, we're assuming that the biology in every patient is the same, which is clearly in terms of stroke and in terms of everything else we treat, nonsense. So there's a lot of variation. You'll see uh, for eMERGE docs who uh, see people uh, with strokes on a regular basis, they'll have seen patients who at two hours have a big completed stroke on their CAT scan and are basically done. You'll also see patients who have very bad symptoms, but you look at their scan at four hours or four and a half hours and there's very little there. So there's obvious, there are obvious differences in terms of uh, biology, in terms of circulation. So there are a couple of tools that are available, and I should preface this by saying that they're far from perfect, far from perfect. If you're working in an institution like probably 99% uh, of us are in Canada at this point, where uh, your imaging is CT-based, there is a technique called CT perfusion scanning, where we look for a mismatch between perfusion and the area of damage. So we're looking at a mismatch which we take to be the ischemic penumbra. I confess that at zero to three hours in a patient who has a good unenhanced CT scan, I don't pay that much attention to the perfusion imaging. If I'm at four hours and 15 minutes, I pay a lot more attention to it because if a patient has what clearly looks like a matched deficit, they're much less likely to benefit from any treatment. So the farther we go out in the time window, the more attention we pay to this. This is relatively easy to do. The problem is it's not always that easy to interpret. And if I was an emergency room doctor, I wouldn't want to have the responsibility for interpreting perfusion scans and making decisions on that basis. I think we're not there yet. We might be there where you can get an, uh, an automated interpretation in a few years, but we're not there yet. Uh, but in some instances, a very useful tool, but probably one that the eMERGE doc is going to use in collaboration with a neurologist or somebody else. If you're MR-based, one can look at a diffusion-perfusion mismatch where you can actually see the core of the infarct uh, on a diffusion MR and use other techniques to, to look at the penumbra. This is also, in terms of evidence, this is still really an unproven construct, 
but there are early trials suggest, to suggest that it's helpful in selecting patients, particularly in a later time window. Okay, you had mentioned that the, the CT perfusion images can be helpful closer to the four and a half hour time. Or even, time or even, and I'm not suggesting this for emergency room doctors, but even beyond the four and a half hours for sure. someone like me. Yeah, and that, that brings up the new endovascular techniques, intraarterial thrombolysis, for example, that they're doing in some centers in the States now. And are, are they doing... Yes, we do. And, uh, we do intraarterial treatment for, for certain stroke types, yeah. Okay. Could you just give us uh, just a quick run of which kind of patients you do use intraarterial thrombolytics for? Sure. We do a CT angiogram on basically everybody who has a large vessel stroke, unless there's a very specific reason for not doing it. If the patient has a carotid T occlusion, so the collusion at the top of the carotid extending into the middle cerebral, or has a very proximal large middle cerebral artery clot, Experience tells us that TPA doesn't work very well in those populations. It's probably better than nothing, but doesn't work very well. People have the notion that TPA is a high explosive. It isn't. It's a nibbler. So what TPA does is nibble away from the outside of the clot. So clot volume is a very significant factor. So we tend to treat intraarterially in cases where the clot volume is very large and we doubt that we're going to be able to break it up with an intravenous thrombolytic. Now, what we will frequently do, and this again, I I don't want to pretend that this is evidence-based medicine because the trial work is ongoing. Uh, What we will very often do is treat a patient intravenously initially because even in the best hands, getting a patient into a cath lab for an intraarterial procedure will take an hour or close to an hour. And uh, so we want to uh, give the benefit of the established treatment while we get a little bit more adventurous. But the biggest determinant is clot volume. Okay, and is there a time cutoff for the intra-arterial thrombolysis? We tend to get a little leery beyond six hours. We want to be in the clot by, by six hours. Again, the earlier the better. In the posterior circulation with basilar occlusions, There are lots of reports of good outcomes up to 12 hours and beyond 12 hours, so a significant difference between the anterior and the posterior circulation. Okay, so for the practicing eMERGE doc, uh, in terms of getting the neurologist on the phone, at what time past should we not be considering any kind of thrombolysis, intraarterial or or IV? Well, for most of our listeners, uh, that would mean transferring the patient and I think if you're beyond four hours, unless it's the posterior circulation. In the anterior circulation, by the time you transfer a patient, reassess them, get them into a cath lab, I think uh, I would think that four hours, I think much beyond that, okay. is probably uh, going, going out of what's reasonable. Posterior circulation, totally different story. Okay, so for a posterior circulation eight, stroke, hours. eight, okay. Well, the PROACT-2 study looked at the uh, use of intraarterial TPA, and that study showed benefit out up to six hours. So when do you call a neurologist uh, if your hospital isn't organized to do the work? Well, certainly at two hours you will, at two and a half hours you will. At three hours you might think there's no point any longer, but I agree, Dr. Selichin, at three hours you still might call, 
and discuss the truth of it that you may be resistant to give TPIV, but can you transfer the patient rapidly for consideration intra-arterial treatment? Once you're in four or four and a half hours, you may still call, but it'll be to no avail. Four to four and a half hours plus transfer time brings you to six or seven hours. So for anterior circulation strokes beyond four, four and a half hours, uh, you've probably missed the opportunity. I think that's some really good, practical, useful information for the Merge talk. That's great. Good. So let's talk a little bit about some of the contraindications to lytics. Just like in MI, there was a huge long list of contraindications to lytics when the original trials came out and the contraindications became softer and softer and softer as we gain more experience with them. There's just a few particular ones that sometimes trip people up a little bit. I just wanted to talk about some, some of those. For example, are rapidly resolving deficits always a contraindication to lytics? Absolutely not. If a patient is fluctuating and has an occluded blood vessel, that's very typical of the natural history of acute ischemic stroke. What happens very often in strokes is that patients are bad, they start to improve, they get worse, they get better, and that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a blocked vessel opening up. That has to do with collateral circulation coming and going and coming and going, and in a lot of people, the collateral circulation ultimately will fail. So fluctuation is not a contraindication. Sudden dramatic improvement will make you think twice, but if I have a patient who's been fluctuating and improves and has a blocked middle cerebral artery, personally, I'm going to treat that patient. Mm-hmm. And how about the patient who improves, but they still have a disability? I mean, what I've heard is that people can certainly improve, but if they improve to a point where they still have a significant disability, that's still a disability that can be helped by lytic. Yes. Okay. The other contraindication, which we had touched on earlier, was the INR. Do we always have to wait for the INR result before we go ahead with our lytic? There was a study that I read out of neurology that said that if you ask three questions, and the answer is no to those three questions, that the chances that their INR is anything above normal, it has a sensitivity of 100%. And the three questions are, are you taking warfarin, are you taking heparin, and are you on hemodialysis? If the answer to those three is no, then there's 100% sensitivity for a normal INR and PTT. So let's say someone is on warfarin and you get the INR back. Do you have a cutoff in your head of when you would hold back on the lytic? Well, I've heard two cutoffs. According to NINS, it was 15 seconds. I'm trying to find out what 15 seconds corresponds to. It is not easy. <laughs> so the cutoffs I've heard are 1.5 and 1.7, and it's institutionally specific. Would I be confident the INR less than 1.5? Yes. And 1.5, 1.7, I'm going to have to defer to Dr. Selchin on that one. I'll treat below 1.7. So in terms of resolving deficits, unless they've resolved completely to zero, a lot of stroke neurologists will still recommend giving lytic. In terms of INR, you generally don't need to wait for the INR result if the patient's not on warfarin or on heparin, or in hemodialysis, or as obvious liver disease, which we see several of at St. Mike's. <laughs> <laughs> and if you could just review for the listeners what the absolute contraindications are in terms of blood work. The, the one that sometimes gets forgotten is platelet count. 
and I get nervous. I've treated below 100,000, but I wouldn't recommend that anyone in an emergency room without significant support do so. I think it's just as important as the INR. Let's talk about blood sugar. At the NIST trial, in fact, all the trials suggest if your blood sugar is less than 50 milligram percent in the USA or 2.7 millimoles in the rest of the world, that's a contraindication TPA. I've never fully understood that. Now, undoubtedly, when the blood sugar is quite low, there's a risk of a stroke mimic. And probably that's what they're talking about. So that's what literature says, and I'd be very uneasy about going against literature. The literature also says if your blood sugar is more than 400 milligram percent in the USA, or 22.2 millimoles the rest of the world, you shouldn't use TPA. And the reason there is, as the blood sugar gets very high, the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage goes very high. So personally, if the blood sugar is less than uh, 2.7 or more than 22.2, I'd be very resistant to use TPA. I certainly would discuss it with someone, a neurologist on call, hopefully a neurologist would ask your interest and look for advice. If I saw somebody who was otherwise not symptomatic with a blood sugar of 2.7, I'd probably treat the blood sugar and give them TPA. It would be unusual to see somebody with a focal neurological deficit who was wide awake and alert related to a hypoglycemia. That would be an unusual scenario. So just a quick review of the contraindications to TPA in terms of the blood work. First, a platelet count of under 100,000. Second, an INR of greater than 1.5 or 1.7, depending on who you speak to. But remember that you can consider giving TPA before the INR even comes back for patients who are not on warfarin, not on heparin, not on hemodialysis, or have no known bleeding diathesis or known liver disease. Lastly, a glucose of more than 22, since it increases the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage with lytic, is a contraindication to lytic. As well, the literature says a glucose of less than 2.7 is a contraindication, but some experts like Dr. Selchin would still give lytic after correcting that glucose abnormality. I'd like to talk a little bit more about imaging. We've talked about imaging a little bit. As we've mentioned, there's many strokes that don't show in the first few hours after a stroke on plain CT, uh, at least when read by the emergency doc. One of the main reasons to do the CT, as we mentioned as well, is to rule out stroke mimics. Can we just go over some of the early signs of stroke on plain CT that the eMERGE doc should know about? that can help us confirm the diagnosis, be more confident that this is a true stroke, and also some of the findings on CT that might lean us away from doing lytic therapy. There are two signs that would tend to lead people away from lytic therapy. One, obviously, is blood. Generally, on CT, very easy to recognize blood. It's white. And the only differential in, uh, in most instances is calcification, which tends to be bilateral, more or less symmetrical in the basal ganglia. Number two is more controversial. Nobody's going to argue about whether you should be giving uh, a thrombolytic to somebody who's got blood in their head. That's easy. Number two is a little bit more controversial. If you see fairly clear evidence 
of significant ischemia. So a big area typically in the middle cerebral artery distribution where you see early swelling, early darkness. To my mind, that's a caution zone because the likelihood, and this is very difficult to illustrate with words because it's really, it's, a, it's an appearance. If you have what looks like a completed stroke or is starting to look like a completed stroke, I'm very reluctant to treat because I'm not going to do that patient any good and I may be exposing them to a risk of harm. Now, the notion that you're not going to see anything for 6 or 12 hours in large strokes is what you see is a function of how well trained you are. I would say in middle cerebral artery strokes, I can see something 75% of the time at 2 hours. And I think eMERGE docs haven't been trained to do this. And frankly, a lot of radiologists haven't been trained to do this. But it's there. And there you're looking for more subtle things. You're looking for blurring in the basal ganglia. That's usually the first place where you see things. You see especially the lentiform. You see blurring of the lentiform nucleus. You see blurring of the caudate. You go a little bit more laterally. You see some blurring in the insula. Those are usually the first signs of, uh, of middle cerebral artery infarction on a CT scan. Those are not contraindications to thrombolysis. Those are actually strong arguments for thrombolysis because if the clinical picture shows that the, uh, that the cortex is involved and you're seeing some involvement of deep structures, that suggests that there's brain to save there. I think the important issue for people who, who are interested in this is to find, just like most people in an emergency room will have an organized way of looking at a chest x-ray, is to have an organized way of looking at a, at a CT scan. Every emerge doctor should look at the uh, a few things that every cat's going to look at. We order tons of CTs of the head, so get accustomed to it. Look at the gray-white junction on both sides of the brain. It should be clear. Look at it in the front of the brain, the middle part of the brain, and the back of the brain. Learn if you don't know where the caudate nucleus is, where the thalamus is, and where the lentiform nucleus is. Look at them in every CT scan and learn what a normal one looks like. Learn what the anterior and posterior capsular and what they look like. After looking at 10, 20, 30, 40 CT scans, I must order two or three or four per shift of the head at least. Every confused elderly patient I heard a ton of them. Look at every single one. And I think it's helpful to get familiar with the clarity between the gray and the white matter of the brain, the clarity of the healthy brain of the basal ganglia, and the clarity of the gray-white junction at the insula. Now certainly, if you see obscuration of those in many areas of the brain, the so-called more than one-third of the brain, uh, the middle cerebral artery distribution, which means seeing it in two lobes, I would say you probably should, and you might this anyways, call a radiologist quickly to validate what you've just seen. Gray-white junction clarity, clarity of the basal ganglia, obscuration of the basal ganglia, clarity of the internal capsule. That's what you're looking for. Now, sulcal effacement, of course, refers to edema of the uh, gyri, which makes the sulci a bit smaller and so forth. So that takes experience as well. And of course, midline shift. But if you're going to see midline shift, you're going to have lots of changes by then. Absolutely. 
The one sign that I've read about and heard about and seen once, but probably I've only seen once because I haven't looked at enough of them, is the hyperdense MCA sign. I, I would exercise caution in interpreting hyperdense MCAs until you generate a fair amount of experience because there are a lot more hyperdense MCA mimics than there are stroke mimics, and they're more common. So the, the classic contraindication to lytic in terms of finding something on the CT scan, as you mentioned, was bleed, the obvious one. And the second one, I just want to clarify... It's obvious infarction. It's obvious. So I hear numbers like more than one-third of the MCA territory. After doing this for many years, I still have no idea what a third of the MCA territory means. I don't know, I don't know how to quantify that. But if you're seeing significant hypodensity in a big chunk of cortex, then the horse is probably out of the barn. Or, or certainly the large part of two, three, two lobes. Yeah. Your frontal lobe and temporal lobe, frontal lobe and parietal lobe, your basal ganglia are all sort of hypodense. And those are pretty scary findings. And I, as I mentioned earlier, you can occasionally see this remarkably quickly in people who have an isolated hemisphere who, who don't have any collateral flow. You can see it in an hour and a half. Next, Dr. Selton's going to tell us the step-by-step process that he goes through when a code stroke is called. We'll talk about the challenges of how to give lytic in a community hospital and the dreaded complication of ICH from a lytic. I think the first process step in an emergency room is to make sure that you've got all your organizational ducks in line and so that that patient, the patient with a likely stroke, gets whipped into somewhere where they can be seen. We encourage our nurses and our physicians to be quick with those patients. When the patient is waiting for a CT scan, is not the time to do a medical school history and physical, and it's not the time to do complex nursing assessments. So what we want is a very basic preliminary history, a line in, if I can convince the nurses two lines, that's even better, but a line in, and most important of all, blood drawn and sent. Don't care about a cardiogram. So my first priority is to get that patient up to the scan room as fast as possible, preferably within 20 minutes. While the patient is going, if there are ambulance attendants or family members, we'll use the time when the patient is being transported to try and get a little bit more history or we'll get on the phone to try and get more history while the patient is being scanned. It's not at all unusual for me to meet the patient in the scan room or on the way back from the scan room. So blood work, line, basic history, scan, and then fill in the detail when you have the imaging or while the imaging is being processed. In terms of discussion with patient and or family, I think there are a couple of issues here that are quite important. I'm very reluctant to have a treatment discussion with a patient who's had a major middle cerebral artery stroke. I think, frankly, that's a little bit ethically challenged. I'm not sure that somebody with a stunned brain is in a position to have a good discussion about uh, benefits and risks of treatment. So I want to talk to a family member, caregiver, somebody 
if they're available. What I'll tell uh, them is very much what we've been discussing this evening. I'll tell them that this is not a miracle drug. It's like most medical treatments. It works in some people. It doesn't work in others. And I, I look at some of the more recent work that's been done in terms of benefit, which suggests that the benefit is probably, if you look at the benefit globally, rather than just looking at NIH scores of 0 and 1, that the benefit is probably bigger than 13%. It's probably more like 20 or 25% in terms of individual patients. I'll tell them that. I'll quote them a hemorrhage risk of about 6%, because that's the clinical trial number, emphasizing that the two likely places to bleed are the brain and the gut. And I'll tell them that the clinical trial data showed benefit taking into account that risk of hemorrhage. I never minimize the risk of hemorrhage because uh, when you've been doing this as long as I have, you do see people die as a result of symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage. If there's no family and the patient cannot participate in the discussion, which is common in this context, as with surgical emergencies, I will treat the patient and take responsibility for the treatment. This is treatment that's indicated by guidelines, and if there's no one to consent, from my perspective, it's uh, the physician's role to make a decision and do what they think is the be in the best interest of the patient. This is something that emergency room doctors do with some considerable frequency. So Dr. Seltram reviewed for us very nicely the steps taken in a stroke center when someone comes with a stroke and receives lytic. Dr. Himmel, in a community hospital, what are some of the things that we need to do to help facilitate possible thrombolysis for our stroke patients who come in? Like all things in medicine, it depends. There are some community centers in the Toronto area where the hospital is committed to TPA and has neurologists and internists committed to TPA. So the solution there is quite simple. You follow the protocols. You assess the patient quickly, get a CAT scan within 30 minutes, expert interpretation within 45 minutes, call your neurologist who's on call for strokes, come to a rapid agreement and give the TPA. So if you're in a hospital like that, life is easy. But let's say you're in a hospital that's not committed to TPA. Well, in Toronto, stroke patients in this day and age don't usually arrive in those hospitals because the ambulances know to direct them to stroke-oriented hospitals. But occasionally, a patient will come in by a car. Their spouse or their friend will drive into the hospital. And here you've got a patient with a stroke, and my God, what are they doing here? What you do depends. If you know who's on call for neurology, and if the neurologist on call is oriented towards stroke, I would probably get a fast CT, call the neurologist, call the radiologist, tell them what's going on, and the three of us would come to a decision. On the other hand, if you're in an area where the radiologists are uncooperative, if you're in a hospital where the neurologist is on call, someone who simply does not want to get involved with TPA management, then you're in a tough spot. What I do in those situations is the following. I call the nearest stroke center. I find the physicians that are extremely receptive. And I tell them, I've got a patient. Here's the history. I've just sent them to the CT scanner. I'll actually call these doctors before I get the CT results. Uh, what should I do? 
And they usually will say, call me back with the CT scan. I'm going to call a radiologist, get the read in the CT scan, and call back a stroke neurologist, and we'll come up to a decision. It might be to transfer the patient. It might be to hold my hand and say, go ahead and give a TPA. The issue of transferring patients is a difficult one under the current model because no matter what the intentions of the emergency room doctor are, the system works against transfers. Uh, We've spent a lot of time today emphasizing how important time is, and the 20-minute transfer invariably takes an hour and 20 minutes, and very often one is out of one's window by that point in time. So if there is a way for us to help an emergency room doctor by helping talking through the process, that's entirely legitimate use of the people on call at a regional center. Great. Let's move on to the rare occurrence, but sometimes does happen, and we've got to know as emergency doctors what to do. The rare occurrence of a patient who's received TPA in the emergency department and now has a possible intracranial hemorrhage. Dr. Hemmel, could you go through for us how to recognize an intracranial hemorrhage in someone who's received TPA for stroke and how to manage that patient? Well, a symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage has to be symptomatic. Therefore, if the patient suddenly gets a headache or suddenly deteriorates or suddenly begins to vomit or gets a headache and deteriorates and vomit, you have to get an immediate CT scan. Would you stop your, your TPA at that moment? Probably. And let's say you see a hemorrhage. Well, you got the CT scan because the patient was symptomatic. So clearly, in this situation, you're dealing with a symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. So I guess there's probably two or three things you would do. Number one, I think most people would stop the TPA. In fact, I would say stop the TPA. Number two, are there any clearly defined antidotes? Well, No. But how does TPA work? TPA gobbles up fibrin. TPA lowers your fibrinogen level. So the most important thing to provide the patient with is fibrinogen and fibrinogen and fibrinogen. And how do you get fibrinogen in Canada? Cryoprecipitate. So I would say the most logical antidote would be 10 units of cryoprecipitate because that's what the patient is missing at that point in time. Is there a role for prothrombin complex concentrates? In my opinion, absolutely not. Factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 are not fibrinogen. The answer is no. Is there a role for a common factor 7 in this situation? In my opinion, absolutely not. The patient's having a stroke. You're going to give them a drug which is going to give them another stroke. So common factor 7A, no. Prothrombin complex concentrates, no. 10 units of carboprecipitate, perfectly reasonable, and a pool of platelets, perfectly reasonable. But let's face it, this is the kitchen sink, the reasonable things to try. I have no idea how effective they will be, nor is anybody else. Uh, the other question that comes up is, do I need a neurosurgeon on standby in case things go wrong? And the real-world answer is no. Because uh, let's just paint the scenario. So we've just given the patient a thrombolytic treatment. They bled. And we're asking the neurosurgeon to go in in the context of a patient who's just been thrombolized. I think you can imagine 
the enthusiasm or lack thereof that the neurosurgeon would bring to this situation. In the cases study, the Canadian trial, uh, or the Canadian registry, of 1,148 patients, there was exactly one surgical procedure. Uh, I know about it because it was my patient, and the surgeon was treating me, not the patient, because the patient had an intraventricular hemorrhage remote from the stroke and got into big trouble from that. But that, again, that was hours and hours later. So neurosurgical standby, not necessary. Next, Dr. Himmel's going to wrap up our discussion on lytics and stroke with what I think is one of the most profound segments we've ever had on emergency medicine cases. I think every doctor, particularly every eMERGE doctor after today, has to look at the data again, has to review what influences their thinking, and come to a decision how they will approach the patient. And my plea would be, don't base it on the opinion of one person, or two people, or three. Look at the studies, speak to your neurologists, and then at least give as close to an objective decision as you can. Now certainly, if you don't look at the data, and if you're influenced by the opinion of one influential opinion maker, well then your job is over. But it probably isn't very accurate. If you look at the data, you've got a lot of homework to do. But I think you'll get a much more objective, personalized, intellectually honest opinion to the patient. But I also have to realize there's such a thing as non-verbal communication. If you believe in TPA, you'll have a positive non-verbal communication and your patient or family will pick up on it. If you don't believe in it, you'll have the opposite effect. If you have no clue whatsoever, in my opinion, tragically, you will give a negative picture. Because if you haven't got a clue, what's the safest thing to say? Very little. And you're going to communicate a very negative, non-verbal, I think, message. So information, knowledge, review, and study is very important. After all, it's the third commonest cause of death in North America. It's a major cause of disability in North America. The population is getting older. We're going to see possibly less severe strokes, but certainly more strokes. If nothing else today, I think the audience will probably be encouraged to review the data and rethink this entire topic from start to finish. Okay, let's move on to talking a little bit about dedicated stroke units. How do stroke teams and dedicated stroke units affect patient outcomes? More than TPA. What we have to remember is that in the best possible setting, with the best organization, we're never going to thrombolize more than 20% of our patients with acute strokes. And in most centers, the number is a lot smaller than that. That's the best number. There is a very robust literature that goes back for years that indicates that dedicated, organized stroke care reduces morbidity and mortality. Now, how does it do that? It does that by preventing people from dying from aspiration, by preventing people from dying from infection, by early mobilization that does away with a lot of the morbidity that's associated with immobility. 
So there's a very powerful literature uh, that suggests that on a population basis, this is an extremely important part of stroke care. And the notion that good stroke care can't begin in the emergency room is wrong. We know that fever is bad for the brain in the context of stroke, that outcomes in stroke are worse with even less than a degree of increased temperature. We know that significant hyperglycemia is a bad prognostic factor for stroke. We know that stroke is associated with dehydration, and it's just common sense to see that there are potential benefits for rehydrating someone through increased circulation in the context of acute stroke. We know that being careful about feeding people in the context of acute stroke can be a very important factor. So there are a lot of things that, even in the absence of the possibility of of thrombolysing, there are a lot of things that an emergency room doctor can do very early on that can help to improve outcome. And ideally, I would think that emergency room doctors should be advocates for uh, increasing uh, this kind of treatment within their hospitals. That doesn't necessarily mean a geographically dedicated stroke unit. That's not possible in, uh, in a lot of institutions. But it means trying to help to have a cohort of staff who understand what the issues are and committed to best practice care to improve outcomes. Great. That leads us very nicely into the specific ED supportive management of patients with stroke. Dr. Selchin mentioned a few of the very important things that emergency doctors should be aware about in terms of supportive management. Can you just review for us specifically what we should be doing for each of those particular issues? So there's tons of literature on this, but I'll start by the following. Emerge doctors can do a lot that'll help the patient, and emerge doctors can do a lot that'll harm the patient. Big time. So primum non nocera. First, let's not harm, and then let's help. First of all, ABC, airway breathing circulation. You've got to protect the airway. If the patient clearly is unable to maintain an O2 level that's acceptable, you have to assess their airway. And if they require intubation, you have to intubate the patient. Now, studies have clearly shown patients who require intubation have a very poor prognosis. Because the truth of it is, stroke patients are usually reasonably awake. Maybe not with it or oriented, but they're awake. Every management is crucial. And with that goes, of course, the concept NPO, nothing by mouth till they've been assessed in regards to swallowing. What's the best O2 level, the O2 saturation? Some of the best recommendations come from the guidelines of the American College of Cardiology, American Stroke Association. And they recommend O2 sat of more than 92%. You don't need 100% by any means. It may even be harmful in the production of free radicals, but O2 level of more than 92%. What do you get for intravenous fluids? Hyponatremia is bad. Don't give D5W. Don't give two-thirds, one-third. Use normal saline and not Ringer's lactate. Now, most ED doctors use normal saline anyways, so it's not a problem. But if you aren't committed to normal saline for all patients, certainly in stroke patients, use normal saline. Usually at least maintenance, 100 cc's an hour, unless the patient's clearly dehydrated. 
There was a belief many years ago, stroke patients should be kept slightly on the dry side to prevent cerebral edema. This is not good. They should be kept normal, not hyperhydrated nor dry, but well hydrated. How about uh, temperature control? Clearly, for every increase in temperature, your metabolic rate goes up. When your metabolic rate goes up, you get more free radicals and more brain damage. Certainly, you want to keep the temperature under 38 degrees. Now, what's the safest drug to use? Probably Tylenol. If your patient has an NG tube, you might crush up and give it orally. The patients often will not have an NG tube. You probably should give it rectally if it's early on. Now, of course, of those stroke patients with a fever, about half will have a well-identified cause, and about half, it'll be the stroke itself. Consider aspiration pneumonia. Consider a urinary tract infection. Consider a skin infection, which means you've got to examine the paraanal area and the thighs throughout cellulitis. Should these patients have a Foley catheter? Well, you should assess their abdomen, either through physical exam or through the new method of assessing abdomens, the ultrasound. If they have a distended bladder, you should pass a Foley catheter. I won't discuss the debate about how, debate how long they should remain in, but you don't want a patient with a full bladder. It's painful and raises the blood pressure. They require monitoring, yes, cardiac monitoring, heart rate, blood pressure, all that sort of stuff. Blood pressure levels we'll talk about later, but I'm going to make a point right now. Resist the urge to lower blood pressure dramatically. Resist the urge to lower blood pressure dramatically. When someone's blood pressure is 200 over 100, or 210 over 110, and they're not getting thrombolytics, you'll be told by some good soul their pressure is way up, it's 210 over 110. Resist the urge to dramatically lower blood pressure. A drop in systolic blood pressure of more than 20 or 30 millimeters of mercury will clearly be harmful for your patient. How about blood sugar? Every patient who presents with a stroke requires an accurate check as their first laboratory investigation. Blood sugar, blood sugar, blood sugar, through stroke mimics. What are the current recommendations? Generally speaking, if you're extremely, extremely uptight, blood sugar of five to eight. However, most studies have shown blood sugars of five to 10 are adequate. There've been a couple of detailed studies, particularly from Britain, looking at getting your blood sugar down to under eight by giving intravenous insulin with glucose and potassium. There's been no benefit shown in reducing the blood sugar to under five to six to seven. So for the eMERGE doctor, I think any level up to about 10 is probably acceptable. When would you consider using insulin? Certain levels above 11, 12, 13, 14 millimeters of uh, sugar. Now certainly, we're very accustomed to seeing blood sugars of 14, 15, 18 do nothing. Consider giving insulin if the blood sugar is more than 11, but monitor the adequate check on a regular basis. Monitor electrolytes on a regular basis. That's the essential stuff. So Dr. Himmel, you had mentioned that we were going to talk about blood pressure in a little bit more detail. Uh, we know that stroke patients with severely elevated blood pressure have worse outcomes, but when to give antihypertensives and what blood pressure goal we should be aiming for still remains quite controversial. The most recent AHA guidelines suggest that we should be treating a blood pressure of over 220 on 120 for patients who are not eligible for TPA and a blood pressure of 185 on 110 for patients who are eligible for TPA. 
with drugs like labetalol or nicardipine. Now, there's no really good randomized control trials that led them to these conclusions. As you mentioned, one thing we definitely don't want to do is lower the blood pressure too quickly because that'll decrease the cerebral perfusion pressure that might worsen ischemia. Can you just give us some practical tips about the factors that we need to take into consideration when deciding whether to lower the blood pressure or not, how much we should lower it, and whether we should be strictly using these guidelines? This is an area to be very confident because this is an area you're going to be faced with again and again and again. So you may as well get the guidelines down clearly so you're confident and have nothing to be unclear about. Most studies of blood pressure and stroke in the context of acute stroke are observational. And we know from observational studies that a systolic blood pressure of more than 180 suggests a poor outcome. A systolic blood pressure of less than about 100 suggests a poor outcome, sort of a U-shaped curve. The best pressure is more than 100 and less than 180 at the time of presentation. We also know that initially at the time of a stroke, blood pressure tends to be very, very high. It's the response to ischemia of the brain. So the first thing I want to make sure of is that the patient's breathing, their O2 levels are reasonable, they're comfortable, and their bladder isn't distended to their umbilicus. Because that by itself will raise their blood pressure. There's three numbers worth remembering, I think, in regards to pressure. And I use the term mean arterial pressure or MAP. And the three numbers are 150, 130, and 110. 150, 130, and 110. If the blood pressure is more than 220 over 120, that's a map of 150. Most recommendations suggest lowering the blood pressure by about 10%, 15 at the absolute most. The patient has a stroke and their BP is 220 over 120, the use of labetalol or nicardipine in the States. And what would you lower your pressure to? maybe from 220 over 120 to about 180 over 105. Not much lower than that, there's risks you're gonna harm the patient in this particular context. Now, of course, if they have aortic dissection, if they have ST elevation infarct, if they have pulmonary edema, you'll have to use lower numbers because now you're treating those conditions. If they have malignant hypertension with multifocal signs suggesting encephalopathy, then you're going to have to use different guidelines. But in the presence of a clear-cut stroke, you certainly are justified in treating 220 over 120, which is a map of 150. Clearly, if you're going to use thrombolytics, the recommendation is your pressure must be less than 180 over 110. You're aiming for 180 over 105. That's a map of 130. The other guideline, of course, is if their pressure is low, 100 over 40, 100 over 30, 100 over 60, but ask yourself, why is this patient hypotensive? If they're dehydrated, treat the hypotension. If you suspect sepsis, you may have to treat the sepsis. Low blood pressure is uh, very, very worrisome. But certainly be absolutely confident. If your patient has a pressure of 190 over 105, 180 over 110, and they have no complicating factors, do absolutely nothing other than the basic principles we've already discussed. Be completely confident in that regard. 
Couldn't agree more. That marks the end of part one of this episode. Please go on to part two of this episode where we'll talk about antiplatelet agents in stroke, heparin in stroke, we'll talk about embolic strokes, dabigatrin, and management of intracranial hemorrhage.